This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. Oh, you're going to be glad you're here. Oh gosh. Sometimes when I do an interview for this show, an hour disappears like in the blink of an eye. And that's how today's episode was for me. The amount of questions I held back, the places that I wanted to keep going. I mean... Today was an interview that I've wanted to have for a really long time, and I'm just delighted to bring it to you because right now we're in a series called For the Love of Peace. What could be more salient than that right now? The time of year, what's going on in the world, sort of the turmoil that most of us are just walking around with on a daily basis. And so when I think about folks who help us embody peace in our world, this man comes to mind that I have on the show today. He is certainly 
one of America's most beloved spiritual leaders. He's a New York Times bestselling author of The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, which is a great title. Also, Learning to Pray. And if you don't follow him on Instagram, you certainly should. And I will put that link up. He is just a breath of fresh air in the religious fray of people who think other folks are getting it all wrong. And rather, he calls us to love everyone. I have admired and respected him for so long. So as a Jesuit priest, Father James Martin has long been an advocate for the marginalized, especially, obviously, in regards to inclusion in faith spaces, particularly his own denomination of Catholicism. I don't know if you have paid attention or if you're a part of this tradition, but some landmark perspectives have been handed down from the Vatican recently, including one that says transgender people can be baptized and be godparents, in addition to some other, I guess, forward-thinking statements toward LGBTQIA communities who have long been disenfranchised, certainly from the upper echelon of the Catholic Church. And so Father Martin has been a strong and powerful and profound voice helping to shape these more inclusive perspectives. So we're going to talk about that a little bit and how those came to be, how those perspectives were formed. But today we're also going to focus on a topic that has been really close to Father Martin's heart, the subject of his new book, which is called Come Forth. The Promise of Jesus's Greatest Miracle. It is a book that examines the death and resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus. And just in case you're thinking, uh, we're heading for some boring exegesis of scripture here. We are not. And this is not a heavy-handed religious dissection of the story. It is fresh and hopeful and honest and both divine and human. In Father Martin's words, it's about how this story can help us think about what we want to leave behind in our tombs, as it were. What do we want to let die? Like what? What parts of our patterns, our behaviors, even addictions, what do we want to leave behind in the tomb to let die so that we can hear God's voice inviting us to come forth? Doesn't the thought of leaving behind what doesn't serve us or anyone else by the way, something I've heard countless times in therapy, doesn't that sound freeing? And maybe one of the biggest possible levers to pull to bring us peace that can seem so elusive, particularly right now. I love what author Mary Carr had to say about his book. She said, I came away with a renewed hope that grace alone can call me out of whatever tomb I've buried myself in. I think you're going to see what she means in this conversation. If you haven't already followed Father Martin and put yourself under his sort of spiritual leadership, I hope today is the day you start. He is faithful and trustworthy and good and wise. And what a conversation that it evaporated before I barely got started with him. So... Please enjoy this wonderful conversation with the inimitable Father James Martin. Father Martin, I told you before we started recording that I have 
just deeply respected and admired your work and your voice and your leadership in the world for quite a while. Thank you. And I I take my faith input pretty seriously, who I trust and who I believe and your your integrity over year after year after year after year is marvelous and it's faithful and it's trustworthy and I'm just so happy that you're here. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Really nice to be with you and thanks for inviting me. So, a lot of my community already follows you and learns from you and listens to you. But for for those who are new to you, I've explained to them a little bit already about who you are, talked about your new book, which you and I are going to talk about in just a moment, the story of Lazarus, but in a really lovely and even innovative way. If it's possible to be innovative around a very old text, (laughs) you've done it. A very old text, right? (laughs) A very, very old text. You've done it in the way that you have parsed out that story in a way for us to learn from here in 2023 is always the, for me, the mark of a gifted teacher. And so we're going to get into that, but I wonder if you would indulge us for just a moment first and talk a little bit about, let's start here, your journey to becoming a Jesuit, which is a particular path. It's a very particular path and you have found yourself on it and not only on it, but somehow you have the ear of one of the most preeminent religious figures in the world, the Pope, and, and you just used to be a kid. So how, how did you get from there to here? If you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your personal story. No, not at all. And probably like a lot of your listeners and maybe yourself. I didn't grow up super religious. I grew up in a Catholic family. I went to uh, the Wharton School of Business as an undergrad at Penn. And then I worked for six years in corporate America. And I found it, uh, you know, it was exciting. This is the early 80s, like probably, you know, way before your time. And I was a yuppie and was really excited to live in New York. Yeah. But then eventually I just thought, gee, this doesn't really seem to fit me. You know, a lot of people for obviously, you know, for whom business is a real vocation, maybe a lot of your listeners, but it just didn't seem to fit me. And one night I came home and turned on the TV set and there was a documentary about a Trappist monk named Thomas Merton. And I read his book, The Seven Story Mountain, which was kind of his memoir of leaving his life behind in the 1940s. And I just thought it seemed so much more interesting than what I was doing. And that led to thinking about the priesthood, which led to the Jesuits for And for those listeners who might not be familiar, it's a Catholic religious order. And I entered, yeah, in 1988 and never looked back. It was basically, I think God kind of pushes you from places, but also pulls you into other places. So there's a bit of a push out of the corporate world and a pull into the Jesuits. I'm curious what your family and your colleagues thought about that. Had they thought that you had gone just straight off your rocker? from, I mean, the 80s was kind of the height of corporate America. I mean, it was just the sexiest thing going on in the world. And then you just say, guys, heads up. I think I'm going to head into the priesthood. (laughs) No, they thought my family was horrified. They were really upset. Oh, yeah. I mean, like really like tears. And they thought I was crazy joining a cult, uh, you know, losing my mind. My friends from GE, I was working for GE, General Electric, they thought I was crazy. 
And one of my friends, I'll never forget it, who's still a good friend, he said, I think you should see a psychologist or something. And I said, I said, I'm already seeing a psychologist. And he said, I think you should see another psychologist. (laughs) They thought I was nuts. And then my friends from school, from Penn, took a bet on how long I would last. And the outside bet, the outside bet was six, six months. Six months. So, yeah, I should have. I should have gotten in on that. I should have gotten in on that bet. Yeah, you, you know, I could have made a little yeah. more money. <laughs> yeah, you need to go collect um, on that right. debt. You are owed yeah, for so, sure. No, people were people because I really had never talked about it with anyone. And you know, again, when you're kind of on this spiritual, when you're on a spiritual path, you know, sometimes you think, well, maybe I'm crazy, and you you feel funny talking about it with people. And that's one of the reasons I write books to just say to people. Like, you know, being on a path is a human thing and you can read about it. If you don't want to talk about it, you can read about it. And there's other people that are going through it and that have been through it, you know, you know, way before you. What were those earliest months and even years like for you? Because as you mentioned, you didn't come up through a particularly religious family. So, you know, I think there are some people who go into the priesthood having really had that sense of a calling their whole lives or their, their, that was in their family lineage, or it it seemed like more of an obvious for you, this was really an outlier idea. And so having not had a lot of personal experience, what was it like at the beginning for you? Did you ever wonder if you'd made the right choice or was it immediate fit? That's a good question. You know, it's funny. So I entered in August of 1988. And around this time of year is when I just started to think, boy, this is just an amazing thing. And the novitiate, you know, nov- you're a novice for the first two years, was really like going from 100 miles an hour to 10 miles an hour. And totally. it was a lot of prayer, a lot of quiet, you know, learning about the Jesuits, learning about spirituality. You know, we worked with the poor, you know, early on, but it was much slower, a much slower pace wonderful people that I live with. And I just thought, this is amazing. Like, why aren't more people doing this? So it was great. I often say that the first year of novitiate, I think this is still true, was was probably the happiest year of my life, just because I thought it's like a honeymoon, basically, you know, at the beginning. I think when God kind of calls to us and people enter into kind of, a, I would say, like a more spiritual path, I think God really does make it like a honeymoon, like early on to kind of like grab us. Right. And then things settle down, like in any relationship, you know, problems come up. But at the beginning, it was really beautiful and particularly learning about prayer and learning about God and reading the gospels. And I'd never done anything like that before. So it was really, it was really kind of beautiful. Mm. How old were you in your twenties? 27. Yeah, I was 27. So still you, I mean, at that time I, I thought I was old, <laughs> but that oh, was young. Sure. I know. (laughs) I knew so much when I was 27. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. Mm -hmm. I thought I did too. And so it was a, it was a real kind of flowing down, which I think, you know, I needed to do because I was going a million miles an hour. So it was really beautiful, beautiful time in my life. I ask you one more question about that before we move into your book. Mm -hmm. I, among many reasons why I have always respected your voice is that you have long cited with folks who have been traditionally marginalized and even specifically inside religious structures, including the Catholic church, but certainly my tradition too, which had, I mean, I came up Southern Baptist. So I sort of come out of the evangelical world and we have a lot of crossover here. And I've always appreciated your advocacy 
I mean, all the way to the top. You you run that flag all the way to the top of the flagpole with change makers and policy makers and doctrine enforcers even. And so I wonder if that has always been a part of your DNA or if that is something that actually your faith compelled you into. Yeah, what a great question. And, you know, the day that we're recording, it's the anniversary of the martyrdom of six Jesuit priests and their companions in El Salvador, you know, which happened the second year of my novitiate. And that really made an impact on me. These were people that really basically were standing with the poor and were murdered for it. Anyway, what we were basically invited into in the Jesuits and during my training was always working with people on the margin. So the very first thing I did was work with people in a hospital who were seriously ill and really people didn't visit them and like brain injuries. Then I worked with homeless people. Then I worked with Mother Teresa's sisters in Kingston, Jamaica. I ended up, when I was doing my philosophy studies, I worked with gang members for two years. I worked with refugees in East Africa. I worked as a prison chaplain. So we're always, you know, basically asked to work with, you know, the poor and the marginalized and people who are kind of, you know, on the outskirts of all sorts of places. And so that's carried over to working with people who feel like they're on the margins in the church sometimes, you know, LGBT people and you know, refugees and migrants. So, you know, it's a really good question. You know, I'd say it's part of our training as Jesuits, but it's also just part of the Gospels, you know, because Jesus goes out to people who are, you know, outcast. So it's both part of our training and part of the Gospels. It certainly wasn't something I did before I entered the Jesuits, that's for sure. I mean, I, I didn't even think that way. So, yeah, that was that was new after I entered the Jesuits. Mm, gosh, I'm having to force myself not to camp out here with you for 10 hours because I have also always felt really compelled toward allyship and advocacy because of my faith, not in spite of it. The faith is what led me there. And that's the way I always understood Jesus. And that was the way that I understood the outworkings of the gospel in the world, which would have always been found, of course, and was always found on the margins and with marginalized and communities, refugee communities, of course, sick and poor and otherwise disenfranchised. And so I have found it disorienting to become an adult now and have to evaluate the church that raised me and taught me all that to its credit that that was a that would have been faithfulness to the gospel and now see the church at odds with those communities and even offenders toward them and further disenfranchising them in a lot of spaces in in the social sphere and the religious sphere so I'd love to hear you talk about that for a moment and how you help folks in your church and your faith space, but also the rest of us who are also listening to you who reconcile the church we see right now with perhaps the one that raised us on a different set of values that now seem to not be centered anymore. Yeah, another great question. By always focusing on Jesus and by always reminding people that this is where Jesus stood, right? I mean, there's so many gospel passages. I mean, the Roman centurion, the woman at the well, you know, people with leprosy, the gospel story of Zacchaeus, on and on and on and on. You know, he dines with sinners and tax collectors and all this. And we're called to, you know, reach out to people who feel and who are 
marginalized and excluded. Okay, so that's pretty clear in the gospel. It says, as the saying goes, for Jesus, there's no us and them, there's just us, right? And he's about making making the community into an us. You know, I think part of it is, you know, how do you reconcile when some churches don't seem to want to do that? I would say some members of churches don't want to do that, is to say that the church has always been struggling with that. The church is always full of people, people who are in, <laughs> right, exactly, people. Yeah. And they have their struggles themselves, and we have to try to understand where they're coming from without, you know, in a sense, demonizing them and saying you're a bad Christian, you're a bad Catholic, whatever. But I think it's always focusing on Jesus. You know, it's so funny. I guess in like the 80s and 90s, those little bracelets, what would Jesus do? And then people make fun of them. Oh, ha ha. You know, I think it's an important question. You know, what would Jesus do? And really, what is Jesus doing right now? He's risen, right? What, 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 where is the Holy Spirit inviting us to go? And we remember, you know, when Jesus was when God becomes human, you know, it's not as a king or some ruler. It's as a, you know, to this poor family in Nazareth, this like nowhere little town, right? 200 to 300 people. I talk a little bit of that in the in the Lazarus book, but, and that Jesus himself is kind of marginalized. He's from a marginalized community. He's also vulnerable. One of the things I like to remind people is that Jesus comes into the world vulnerable and naked as a baby. He leaves the world vulnerable and naked on a cross. And so, you know, crucified with with bandits, right? So this is who he is, and this is where God chooses to be marginalized. And so I think that's where we should sort of focus our attention. Mm. It's both simple and profound. And difficult. And difficult. And difficult. Right. Because you're right. I mean, we are going to get pushback, but, you know, Jesus promised us that, Right. And it's going to be difficult and complicated, but it's always it, it's always inviting the people to look at these individuals, whether they're refugees or migrants or homeless or whatever, LGBT or whatever, as people, right? Like as individuals and to deal with the person in front of us, right? Like Jesus did. He didn't see a Samaritan or he saw a woman in need. He didn't see, you know, leper. He saw a person, right? The Gospels are endlessly rich. That's really the sort of, you know, well that I always go back to. Me too. It's the Jesus stuff that holds me fast when everything else seems noisy and strange and disorienting. It's the Jesus bit that I keep going, yeah, that's compelling still. Yeah. And I really like the word that you used, you know, the gospels should be disorienting. I mean, if they're not, if it's just making us feel good about ourselves, I mean, you know, the, geez, God wants us to feel, you know, good about ourselves, but God also wants to kind of shake us up a little bit. You know, there's a great line about the Catholic activist and writer Dorothy Day. I'm not sure if it came from her or it's about her that God comforts the afflicted, but also afflicts the comfortable, which I love. And yeah, it should be disorienting. It should, it should shake us up. You know, Jesus was pretty disorienting. He sure was. You know, guy, I mean, he just created guy. a, he created a he ruckus did. everywhere a mess. he went. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> he really did. A ruckus, and that's of course, a good word. He did. Notably, notably absent from his, his example in life was um, traditional power. That seems to be where he has gotten at odds with a lot of the the modern church because we like that we like the power and we we'd like it to be located in the white house and in the in the vatican and you know or, everywhere or in in us in you know us, i mean certainly. in us i mean 
And then, you know, the distinction between kind of power and authority. I mean, you know, he, I love the idea that, you know, in the gospels, it's people say you speak with authority. It's just a great, it's just a great line. People say that about him all the time. And of course he's doing miracles, which of course, you know, kind of underlines what he's, what he's saying, but you know, people kind of recognize when someone's speaking with authority and he does. And, you know, he does to us today through the gospels, which are accessible to us. It's pretty clear. I mean, you go, you know, particularly, I, I always say to people, look, if you you have difficulties with, you know, one or another way of uh, interpreting the Gospels, you have to say, look, Jesus, it, Jesus constantly is with the poor. I mean, th- there's no two ways about it. Like, that, that's it's what he's not doing. Blessed are the, yeah, blessed are the poor. I mean, you can't get any more blunt than that. But it's it's hard for us. And as you say, it's disorienting because it kind of challenges our status quo. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. Let's talk about Lazarus. This is, of course, a much beloved story and one for those of us who came up in church, have grown up with, of course. So we're going to have some listeners who didn't come up in any sort of like a church or faith space. So if you wouldn't mind, before we sort of drill down into some of your thoughts around the story, would you mind just kind of retelling it just as it was, and this is what happened, and then this, this and this, and then we'll we'll sort of parse it out together. Yeah, I'm happy to. So that's the topic of of this new book, Come Forth, which is what Jesus says to Lazarus. And Lazarus, it's a story in John's gospel, the only gospel where it appears in, in full, really. There's two sisters named Martha and Mary. They live in a town called Bethany outside of Jerusalem. And we know from other gospels that they were friends with Jesus. And they send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is ill. They call him he whom you love. So that's obviously a close friend of Jesus. Jesus waits a couple of days, very mysterious. And we talk about that in the book. He finally comes to Bethany. The sisters, you know, kind of confront him and say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. He says, show me the tomb. They take him to the tomb. Jesus weeps in front of the tomb. Another kind of interesting sort of part of the story. And then he says to the bystanders and to the sisters, take away the stone. Now, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's he's dead. He's been in that tomb for four days. He stands at the tomb and says, depending on the translation, come forth or come out. And Lazarus comes back from the dead and walks out. And he says to the bystanders, untie him and let him go. It is traditionally called Jesus's greatest miracle. It really is. You know, I mean, it's, it's a step above you know, kind of healing people from leprosy and things like that. It sort of sets in motion in John's gospel, 
the crucifixion because people respond to that and react to that. So that's the story of Lazarus. And I think when people hear Lazarus, if they know nothing more about this story, they know raised from the dead by Jesus. So that's kind of that's kind of the shorthand. And the book really looks at this story from a biblical point of view, kind of sort of opening up the verses, a spiritual point of view. What can it tell us about our own spiritual lives? A little bit of a travelogue, you know, kind of going back to what's there today in Bethany called today Al Azariah. And then a little bit of a, this is kind of new for me, a little bit of a cultural history, Lazarus and novels and plays and films and, you know, lots of pictures in the book, which I always like. So yeah, it's a deep dive into this great story of the raising of Lazarus. Mm, all of it's interesting to me. Every bit of Thanks. it. I love to Thanks, me too. locate <laughs> it in in context and in history. I love to consider what did it mean then? I love to consider what does it mean now? It's all very fascinating and such an interesting look, not just at Jesus, but at the people who loved him and their responses. Cause that's where I always find, you know, of course my story in the folks around him who were just normal. They're just regular people trying to make sense of this guy. So Let's start. That's with a Mary great. Martha. That's a great insight, by the way. What you just mm. said, trying to make sense of this guy. Absolutely, that's the theme through the Gospels. Like, who who is this guy? And even Martha and Mary, who are like, you know, his closest friends, you know, they don't they don't get it, you know. And yeah, but but you're right. That, that's that's where I think a lot of us find ourselves, and well, that's a lot, a lot of us find ourselves today. Who is Jesus? Anyway, right. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I wanted no, to say No, no, not at all. I, I'm thing. always comforted by the fact that his closest friends didn't get it <laughs> to the bitter end. I mean, mm -hmm. no matter if they were told plainly or subversively. So we could give ourselves a little bit of grace to sort, sort it out. I always say, look, you know, if they didn't get it when he was standing physically in front <laughs> of them right. and showing them miracles... That's then right. we can kind of be forgiven for not getting. Although I, although some people, one one person answered me once and said, "Well, we should get it more than they do because we kind of know the whole story." So you know, but it is true they don't they don't get him. Who who is this? They say who is this guy? Anyway, <laughs> Mary and Martha, much is made of those two, especially in the community of women of faith. We have been taught and told and explained about these two in myriad ways. So their response here, their reaction to Jesus's delay, to his summons, really all of it, this entire story has been examined for centuries, of course. And so I'd like to hear your take on it because generally, not generally, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of interpretations here, but often one is sort of presented as more faithful and one less, one response perhaps better, one worse. I like your take. I like how you refer to Martha's honesty with Jesus, which a lot of people have interpreted as anger or negativity. And so I wonder if you might discuss what you see in the women, in the sisters. Yeah, and I'd love to hear from you as well. And I know a lot of your listeners are women. And so I focused a lot of the book on Martha and Mary. And for those who don't know, Martha and Mary are Jesus's friends. They live in Bethany. He spends time in their house. Probably the most famous story next to the Lazarus story is in the Gospel of Luke, when Martha is, you know, kind of helping out in the house while Jesus is visiting and Mary is sitting at his feet. And Martha complains and says probably the bluntest thing anyone ever says to Jesus, which is, Lord, don't you care that I'm doing all the work? Tell her to help me. 
which is just incredible. I mean, so they must have been very close because you don't talk to people that you, you don't know that well like that bluntly. So that's the first thing. And then in the story of Lazarus, when their brother is is ill there, she's also blunt. Martha is very blunt. And she she says, as does Mary, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. It's a little bit of a it, it's a profession of faith, but it's also a little bit of a reproach. Like, where were you? You healed all these other people. One of the things I like to point out, and I pointed out in the book, is that their characters shine through in the stories. So Martha in the Gospel of Luke is active, right? She's working. She's doing the diaconia, the service. Mary is the more contemplative one. And same in the story of Lazarus. Martha's the first one that rushes out to see Jesus. Now, here's the thing that I wanted to answer, you know, that you brought up. Sometimes we're told, oh, you know, Martha, 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 you know, you're worried about so many things, which is what Jesus says. And it's often used as a little bit of a reproach or a put down of people who are, quote unquote, too busy, right? Like it's better. Oh, you're too busy. Stop doing so much work. But as I see it, what Jesus is doing in this story in Luke is saying, look, there's a time and a place for everything. It's not that Martha's a bad person or that being busy or active is a, is a bad thing, but that from time to time, it's okay to be contemplative. And so I think what we're called to be is both Martha and Mary, right? To be active and contemplative. And so in the book, I, I you know, take issue a little bit with the sort of denigration of the active life because it, it's used to kind of put people down, right? I'm sure you've heard that in your circles, like, oh, Martha, Certainly. Martha. You know, so many times. Yeah, yes. you know. It's like a Brady Bunch, you know, Marsha, Marsha. That's right. Yes. So, yeah. So, so what do you think about Martha and Mary? I'm kind of curious. What's, what's your take on Martha and Mary? Yeah. You know, just like you kind of just described, I was always taught a, a fairly one dimensional portrayal of each of them. And I am a, just a natural doer. I'm like, oh, I'm a worker and I am, I focus a lot of myself outward. I have to work at, at being a contemplative. I have to work at introspection. I have to really seize some tools to help me be quiet in my mind as an act in and of itself, just being somebody who meditates or who is still or who is thoughtful. And so, of course, I bring my own defensiveness to this story my whole life. You know, I can remember thinking when I was younger, well, somebody's got to cook the dinner. Like who's going to do it? <laughs> because there was never any value assigned to Martha, to Martha's work until I got older. And I began hearing and learning from a more nuanced interpretation of this story. And so my conclusion is like much like yours in that there is something of value in both of the women and in every piece of their story. And also, this is a snapshot. We haven't seen a ton of times. Exactly. Uh, Mary was in the kitchen. Exactly. She works too. That is exactly right. Yeah. I always she works say too. This, yeah, these are two stories. Yeah. And and the other thing is they're they're very blunt in the story of Lazarus. I think what we can also take is that they are honest with Jesus. And it's an invitation for us to be honest with God in prayer. Because so many people, and maybe a lot of people in your tradition, and maybe a lot of uh, listeners will say, Well, I shouldn't be honest because God already knows what I think. Well, you know, it, God wants our honesty. It's part of being in a relationship with God and in, in an honest relationship with God. And so those two great lines from Martha, tell her to help me, you know, it's just very honest. And then if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And also 
she says before he opens up the tomb, there will be a stench. She's just being honest. She's kind of being honest with her friend, which is so beautiful. And I think it's an invitation for us to be as honest with God, just like Martha and Mary. Such a lovely takeaway. Truly one of the most beautiful things to walk away with from this story is that not just sense of honesty, but intimacy is beautiful to witness. And for me, it's it's a permission to be with Jesus exactly as I am. Absolutely. Which is how Jesus comes. This is how he meets them. He meets them in their, you know, really kind of at their best in their, in their house, you know, kind of taking care of him and, you know, being friendly and at their worst, you know, after their brother has died and they're kind of crazy with grief. I just had a death in my family. And, you know, it's a reminder again of, you know, how disorienting to use your word that is for people. And that, and Jesus comes to them and is with them in their grief. And even when they're kind of reproaching him and <laughs> being negative and saying, there's going to be a stench, He's still with them. He still is accompanying them as he accompanies us through all the tough times in our lives. Mm. I'd love to hear you talk about Jesus in this story because you spend quite a bit of time on his humanity and his response and his own personal grief, which is a lot for us to suss out because on one hand, there was a delay potentially a delay he could have chosen not to have. And then there's this grief, even though he is supposedly aware that he has the power to reverse this death, which he of course does. So there's a lot to navigate here in the, in Jesus's experience. And some of it is plain on the page and some of it we kind of infer or wonder about. So I'd like to hear what you think. Yeah. So Christian belief is he's fully human and fully divine. That's very hard for a lot of people to get their minds. I mean, it is a mystery after all. I think it's the fully human part that a lot of people have a hard time with. And, you know, he's raising Lazarus from the dead. So people say, okay, well, he's obviously, you know, fully divine. He's doing these powerful works of power or signs in John's gospel. He's also human. You know, and one of the ways that we know he's human is the is he weeps at the tomb. I mean, you could say he's physically human. You know, he's doing something that's physically human and he weeps. Now, one of the interesting parts of this story for me and that I had to spend a lot of time on in the book is why he weeps. Now, normally we would say it's because he's sad, but the Greek that is used, the Gospels are written in Greek, is that he's a little bit frustrated. He's frustrated with what he feels like is kind of the lack of belief. But it could have been a, a mixture of feelings. Obviously, he's feeling some some emotions. And this is this is the very human Jesus. This is the Jesus that loses his temper with the apostles. This is the Jesus that, you know, he falls asleep. He's sleepy. He's tired. He might be you know, impatient with the apostles. He might be frustrated with things. He says to the apostles, you faithless generation. He's human. And it's very hard, I think, for us to keep those two things together. One of the things I like to say to people to kind of shake people up, disorient them as well, is he is human when he is raising Lazarus from the dead, and he is divine when he's sawing a piece of wood in the carpentry workshop in Nazareth. So it's a, it really is a kind of mystery. We have to keep those two things in tension because if we lose sight of either one, we risk not really understanding who he is. That's right. That's right. And sometimes and I don't care for this, I'm not a fan of this at all, but sometimes when it comes to our 
relationship with scripture and then ultimately with the life of Jesus our minds just have to suffer. <laughs> I sometimes just want to tidy it up and put a bow on a thing and make it kind of clear and plain. And in some cases things are, and in most cases they just simply aren't. Yeah. It's a mystery. Like there's certain things that he's fully human. He's fully divine. You know, there's suffering in the world. God is Trinity. God is eternal. I mean, there's some things that we just cannot get our minds around. I'll tell you, there's a great parable, a little kind of story told about St. Augustine, the, the church father in the early, the, I guess, 400s. He was thinking about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he was going along a beach and he sees this little kid digging a hole in the sand and cupping water and bringing some water from the ocean into the hole. And Augustine says to the kid, what are you doing? And he says, um, trying to put the ocean in this hole. And Augustine says to the kid, now this is apocryphal, of course. Augustine says to the kid, well, you'll never, you'll never fit the ocean into the hole. And the kid says, and you'll never fit the idea of the Trinity into your mind. <laughs> I love it. So, so I'm okay yeah. with these mysteries. I'm yeah, okay with not too. understanding it. And it, it's kind of beautiful. So I love the interplay between the, the human and the divine, particularly in this story. He weeps and then he raises him from the dead. That's right. That's right. Same. The older I get, the more comfortable I am with mystery. And frankly, the more comforted I am by mystery. I, in my younger years, particularly as a Bible teacher, I found temporary comfort in certainty that that was my bedfellow. But the older I get, I find more comfort in mystery and that God is beyond literally my capacity. I don't even know what I don't know. And so that's thrilling. Yeah. And it's like a tension. Like there's some things we're sure of, you know, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, you know, Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's some things that we're like sure of, but you're right. Some stuff we just can't like that story of a custom. We can't fit it into our minds. And I often say to people, I feel exactly the same way. Like people say, well, I, I can understand this. And I, and I say in the book, you know, can you believe in a God that you don't understand? Do we have to really a lot of people say, well, this doesn't make any sense to me, so therefore I'm not going to believe. Do you really think as a human being you're going to believe, you're going to understand all this stuff? So I'm okay with that. I think when we when we get to heaven, we'll have all of our questions answered. <laughs> Certainly. We might have a good laugh at all we got wrong, too. <laughs> I, yes, I hope exactly. so. <laughs> exactly. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. 
Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. Time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'd love to ask you this, Father Martin, because this particular series on our show is centered around this elusive notion, really, of peace and both internally, externally. I mean, I don't have to explain for longer than one second what it feels like to live in this world right now, just at such war and in such violence and neighbor against neighbor. And then the war that the various wars that exist in our souls and in our minds and in our stories. And so I think this this one notion that you really spend time on in your book is that this story can help us think about what we would like to leave behind in our tombs, if you will, this sort of modern iteration of this idea. And so what do we want to let die? You know, what what part of our patterns or our addictions, our resentments, our worries, are we willing to leave behind and let expire? So I like this take. I like how you take an old story and find some current meaning for us. And, and I wonder if you can sort of talk through some of your thoughts there. Yeah, I'm happy to. And that's kind of the spiritual message of the book. So, you know, the message of the story of Lazarus is, you know, theologically, Jesus has power over death and, you know, life is stronger than death. And, you know, which is also underlined, I mean, in the biggest way possible in Jesus's own resurrection. But for us, so we could say, okay, we believe in that. But what does that have to do with kind of my life today, other than, you know, it kind of cements my my faith in Jesus? And I think what's been very powerful for me and a lot of pilgrims that I take to the Holy Land is this idea of what can I let die in my tomb? And so, you know, Jesus says you have to die to yourself. What does that mean? Well, what are the kinds, what are the things in my life, as you were saying, patterns, behaviors, past resentments that I have to kind of let die, like let go of? And the imaginative sort of prayer is to imagine yourself in the tomb. And what what do you want to leave behind there? And how do you want to hear God? And how do you hear God calling you into new life? So, I mean, something simple, 
uh, let's say, and I use a couple examples in the book, let's say you're kind of sarcastic or mean, or you have a sharp tongue or something and someone, and you hurt somebody and, and it's obvious to you that you've hurt them or they tell you that's really mean. And there's something that, you know, people just kind of hold a mirror up to you. And the question is, can you let that die? Can you let that part of you that's mean or cruel or sarcastic or whatever, fill in the blank, die? And can you see that as an invitation from God? So not simply something that a friend tells you or maybe you learn in therapy or from a pastor or something, you know, or in a spiritual group, but that is that, that it is an invitation from God to kind of live a more loving life. And knowing that, can you really trust that God is calling you to something new? And so I, I really go into a lot of depth about that. And what are the stones that are keeping you, you know, from doing that? Like the big stone in front of Lazarus's tomb. How are you still bound up, you know, with, with, with these different patterns and behaviors and, you know, even addictions. So it's a, it's a story that I think really deserves a lot of our attention not only for what it says about Jesus, but what it can do for us and in inviting us into new life. Because I really do believe God wants us to experience new life in, uh, every day. How would you link, if you would, this idea, this invitation of letting letting some things die that are no, no longer serving us or anybody else or this world, letting those die or not, and peace or lack thereof. How do you see these linked if you do? Well, I think there's our own interior piece. And I think until we can let go of things that prevent us from loving God and getting closer to God, we won't be at peace as much as we could be. So to quote Augustine again, he said, my heart is restless until I rest in you. And if it's resting in other things, and if it's kind of attached to other things, then it's not you're not going to be totally at peace. I also think, you know, when we look at our world today without getting too political, you know, if we can let resentment and vengefulness and bitterness and grudges die, right? I mean, so much of so much of the Christian message is forgiveness, and that's letting within ourselves a lot of resentment and a lot of hatred and a lot of bitterness die. That does lead to peace. You know, it's funny in the in the Hebrew, the word that Jesus would have used or Aramaic kind of close was shalom, right? And we all know the word shalom. That is not not just the cessation of violence, right? Like peace, like no violence. It's kind of the highest state of being for everybody. It's kind of the good for everybody. And I think that's really kind of beautiful. And if we can will the good for everybody, which means kind of letting go of our hatred and letting it die in our tombs, that's that's a move towards peace. And And, you know, it's funny, I mean, I'm just thinking about this as you were asking the question. That's one of the things that Jesus always says to people. First thing he says, peace be with you, right? Now, part of it is that they're disturbed. I mean, it's like if, you know, like they see him raised from the dead, they're kind of, you know, kind of freaked out. But he's giving them peace, you know? I give the peace, not as the world gives, but but my peace. And that's about listening to God and letting things go and, and trusting in God. I am just delighted to have had an hour with you and I am so grateful for your wisdom and your generosity and your integrity and your faithfulness. Everybody can get your book wherever books are sold, right? Do you have a place that you'd like to send folks? Uh, wherever books are sold and it is available in print, 
ebook and audio, you know, narrated by yours truly. It took me something like 18 hours to do that. And I do want to say one of the fun things about the book, I know we've been kind of serious, is, you know, there's tons of pictures in it of, you know, what the tomb of Lazarus looks like, depictions of Lazarus. And this is the first book I've done in years and years and years where I thought, why not put pictures in it? And my publisher said, yeah, why not? You know, the way that printing is done these days, it's all kind of digital anyway. So lots of pictures and and lots of Lots to help you pray and imagine things. So yeah, anywhere books are sold. Now you are required. I'm forcing you to answer this final question. And this is a question that I ask all my guests in every single series. And I actually borrowed it from an Episcopal priest who I love. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. And she has just wonderful. She has also been a mentor to me from afar for years. And so anyway, this is her question. Please answer this however you want. It can be earnest. It can be absurd. It dealer's choice. Her question is, what is saving your life right now? Oh my gosh, the resurrection. That's an easy one. Christ is risen. Yeah. And I, I, you know, you know, what do I mean by that? That even though things might look dark, that, you know, think of the disciples on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, they think everything is over. And God shows us that's not the case. You know, Martha and Mary thought things were over and Jesus came and raised Lazarus from the dead. Every All the disciples thought Jesus, that was done. They're afraid. They're behind closed doors. So it's always for me the resurrection. It's the, That's the heart of my faith. I mean, the incarnation is important in the Trinity and all those things. But yeah, it's the resurrection. That's what saves me. Me too. Me too. And we see it happen over and over and over and over just when we think something is Beyond dead, back to life it comes. Beyond dead, I love that. I could have called the yeah. book Beyond Dead. That's great. Beyond That's dead, great. yeah. That's great. Thank you. Thanks for being with me today. And thank you for your candor and your leadership. And I will round up all the links to everything where people can follow you and find your book and see who you are for my listeners. And so delighted to have met you. Thank you so much. God bless you. And uh, let's pray for each other. All right, everybody, peace, peace, peace be given to all this, right? Peace among us, peace in us, peace through us. I want to thank Father Martin for, I guess, just being trustworthy. I feel emotional. I feel like I could cry about this, but spiritual leaders, because they're just people, and I am one of them. So count me among the numbers of spiritual leaders who just have disappointed everybody, right? And just let us down. And I know I've done it too. And so when I find a spiritual mentor who is faithful and who has integrity and who seems to embody everything Jesus was ever really about, it's such a relief to me. It's like a cold glass of water on a hot day. It's just about the time I feel like I have been spiritually gaslit with an inch of my life. Someone like Father Martin comes around and I go, oh, there it is. That's the thing. That was always the thing. It's still the thing. That's the, Those are the gospels. That's Jesus. That's the deal. That's peace. That's love. And it's a relief. And so I hope you felt relieved today. If you go to jinhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, not only will I have this episode, if you'd like to share it, because I believe that our communities are in dire need of peace right now. 
So this is a good episode to share, but I'll also have rounded up all the links to Father Martin's socials and his books and all the places where you can find his incredible teaching and leadership in the world. We're lucky to have him. I send you so much love and peace today. I wish it for your heart, for your for your families. I wish it for your communities and for your neighbors. And I wish it for this world. Sending you so much love, you guys. See you next week. The For the Love podcast with Jen Hatmaker is a presentation of Odyssey and produced by Four Eyes Media with Laura Neitzling, producer, Abby Stevens, production director, Gregory DeMario, production assistant, and Lauren Winfield, researcher. Odyssey's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Leah Reese-Dennis. Special thanks to the team at Odyssey, Maura Curran, Melissa Wester, Matt Casey, Kate Hutchinson, Eric Donnelly, Aaron Constantino, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schupf. Listen and follow For the Love, an Odyssey podcast produced by Four Eyes Media on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.